Hey crew, before we get started today, I just wanted to say a few words about something that happened recently. As you probably know by now, Grant Imahara died suddenly at the age of 49, and Grant's probably best known as one of the hosts of Mythbusters on the Build team. But that's not all he did. He was an electrical engineer, and he was a robotics expert and a special effects technician, and he worked on many, many Hollywood films that you've seen. Uh, he's one of the designers and operators of the new old R2-D2 in the Star Wars prequels. And he played Sulu in the Star Trek Continues web series and in the film Star Trek Renegades. I ran into him a few times at cons on the West Coast where he acted as an MC on some of the panels and interview stages, uh, which is not an easy job, but he did it well and he was a great interviewer. And just a smart guy, and just by all accounts, a really nice guy, and really dedicated to his work. And he's gone way too soon. Um, it's really tragic, and I think he had a lot more to contribute to this world of geek that we all live in. So our condolences go out to his family and his friends, and his friends and co-workers on Star Trek Continues and Renegades. He will be missed. Well, today on the show, I'm speaking with Justine Mastin and Larissa Garski, who are licensed marriage and family therapists, and they have a podcast, Starship Theraprise, where they talk about the intersection of pop culture, fandom, and psychology. I had a really fun talk with them, which you're going to hear right now, and I hope you enjoy it. In the meantime, you can follow us on Twitter at EISTPOD or on Facebook at Enterprising Individuals. You can check out our Patreon at patreon.com forward slash EISTPod if you want to become a crew member of the show. That's it. Enjoy the interview. And with that, let's get underway. My guests on the show today are Justine Mastin and Larissa Garski. Justine and Larissa are licensed marriage and family therapists, and on their podcast, Sarship Therapies, they boldly explore all things pop culture, fandom, and psychology. Justine and Larissa, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you. It's great to have you both. I always ask first-time guests to the show how they first discovered Star Trek and how they became Star Trek fans. Uh, Justine? Yeah, so um, I watched Star Trek The Next Generation when I was growing up. Mm. Um, yeah, and I, I had this this very strong affinity um, for Captain Picard and also for, uh, for Riker. I was a big Riker fan. <laughs> Larissa sure. and I have talked about this on the show that I, I just I found him very charismatic and I wasn't sure if that was like in a romantic or a wanting to be him kind of way. Yeah. And I and I think probably both. Yeah, why not both? Sure. <laughs> <laughs> why not both? <laughs> Larissa, how about you? Um, I would say pretty similar to Justine. I started I like my entry in was Next Generation when I was very, very young. Um, and I remember my two favorite shows at the time were Reading Rainbow yeah, and okay. Star Trek Next Generation. Sure. And it really kind of blew my mind that Jordy LaForge could use his eyes during the day 
but not in the evening. Yeah. <laughs> have you ever seen Roots? Oh, I have now. I mean, luckily I didn't see it back then. Yeah. When I was like five. Yeah. <laughs> I'm a, probably a little older and they showed that in school uh, once or twice. Ooh. And so, yeah, when TNG came out, it was like, whoa, the guy from Roots has got a banana clip on his face. He's in space. <laughs> space banana clip. Yeah, it was really, really exciting. <laughs> How oh did, man, I I loved some space banana clips. <laughs> How did you two meet initially? Uh, Larissa and I met in grad school. Really? So uh, yes, we did. I um, I did grad school twice because I'm an overachiever. <laughs> um, so I have my master's in addiction counseling, and then I went back for a post master certificate in marriage and family therapy, and that's how we met. We met in my second grad school. Okay, second time around. Mm hmm. Go ahead. I remember thinking um, that Justine was very impressive. Oh, yeah. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, no doubt. We were, we were doing something, some sort of dyadic group project, and I don't remember what. And I remember walking away. So, and I don't, so I don't remember what we did. I just remember walking away and being like, wow, Justine's really impressive. She seems like she knows where she's going and what she's doing. <laughs> I had to work with her and do a podcast with her someday. Yeah. I, no, that was no. that was so not on the table at the time. Uh, but, but we wound up having an internship together, and then discovered that we had this shared love of fandom. We did, and then we wound up working together. And then um, Larissa moved from the Twin Cities to Chicago, and the pod was kind of a way for us to stay connected when mm -hmm. she was far away. And what kind of topics do you discuss on Starship Therapies? All sorts of stuff. Yeah, yeah, it's really like no, no um, galaxy uncharted in terms of <laughs> fandom and psychological topics. Um, I think we tend to most often cover issues related to like families and systems mm -hmm. um, because we're both licensed marriage and family therapists by trade. Um, so that comes up quite a bit. Um, but yeah, we do Star Trek. We talk about the Avengers fandom. Supernatural comes up quite a bit. There's something that I've noticed in Trek, and we'll talk about this a little later, but mm -hmm. in a lot of these shows, it's partially, I think, a product of there needing to be drama, but a lot of the families are incomplete, or the family relationships are contentious. Uh, you know, you brought up Supernatural, obviously, like, their relationship to their dad is a huge part of the show. Mm -hmm. And I wonder if there's any, just off the top of your head, um, in fandom, uh, any examples of, like, really healthy relationships that stand out to you, family relationships? Oh, wow. That's, that, I... You can't see Larissa's face, but I can. And there's, or maybe you can. I don't know. Um, but there, I saw this moment of just like, oh no, <laughs> a, health, a healthy family and fandom. Uh, <laughs> yeah, there, there's not a lot, but actually, what the first one that came to mind after I thought, oh no, mm. um, were the Troys or the Troy Rikers, I suppose, because yeah. they hyphenate. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. The way that they're depicted in Picard, they seem like they have all things considered, like a very healthy family, despite the fact that they've gone through multiple traumas, not the least of which is like the untimely death of their son. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And they live, you guys have clearly watched Picard. Let's talk about Picard. Like they live uh, <laughs> on this planet, uh, Nepente, and it is, you know, literally, um, uh, you know, in the Iliad or whatever, it's a bomb, you know, a, a psychological yeah. or an emotional bomb. And mm -hmm. I wonder if it's, 
like I wonder why they live in seclusion in the, on this log cabin or in this log cabin on this planet. You know, obviously they did have a uh, tragedy in their past, but are they like escaping from the universe or are they just kind of sick of the space travel? Like, why do they live in semi seclusion? Well, I think there's probably a few reasons for that. Mm, yeah. Um, and I mean. I mean, the reason they chose this planet, right, was because it had healing qualities. Yeah. yeah. And that that was hopefully going to help their son to heal. Um, but, I mean, the planet has healing qualities. Like, that, that's probably, sure. <laughs> you know, it probably has some sort of mental health benefit in addition to having a physical benefit. Yeah. Um, and also, we are healed by nature. Like, as human beings, we like to be in nature, and this is a very nature-rich environment mm-hmm. um, that, you know, it's sort of like they're, they're tree bathing. Oh, <laughs> I'm not familiar with tree bathing. Forest bathing. Okay. Um, it's, a t- it's a type of meditation. It's literally just being out in the woods and, like, letting the forest wash over you. Mm-hmm. Um in a, in a healing way. So I think they're, uh, the way I perceived it as a viewer was, oh, look, the, the Troy Rikers have gone out into the woods for a healing forest bath. Yeah. And I definitely like, I, I read it very similar to you, Justine, that not that they're going to like stay there forever, but more that they were there. Yes. Cause they hoped it would heal their son. And when it didn't, they like the three, the three of them. So mom, dad, and daughter who's left like they themselves then needed to be healed and so that's sort of what they were still doing there um and trying to kind of figure out what was going to be their next move when picard crash lands on their oasis of peace <laughs> it disrupts it immediately yeah splashes into yeah. their bath <laughs> Uh, Justine and I actually live uh, in the same city. In addition to uh, her private practice, Blue Box, uh, she also has a yoga studio called Yoga Quest. Emphasis on the quest. What does a typical mm-hmm. Yoga Quest session look like? Yeah, well, I have moved uh, Yoga Quest completely online. And that's not just because of the pandemic. I sure. actually did that uh, a little over a year ago because I just um, I had too many hustles. So <laughs> one needed to become a virtual hustle, but you can get everything that you used to get in a physical yoga quest now in the virtual. And what a yoga quest is, um, what I do is I take something beloved from pop culture. In this case, let's use the original Star Trek because mm-hmm. uh, we haven't mentioned that one yet. Um, and I will take an episode or a movie or whatever, and write up a fan fiction adaptation of it, to which I assign yoga poses to certain words, actions, objects in this script I've created. Then I read the script to you. There are poses assigned to specific words. You listen for the words that have poses assigned. It's kind of like Simon Says or a drinking game. That's really cool. And it just it encompasses all kinds of fandoms and genres. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I have, uh, I have done... I've done a send up of just about anything you can imagine. <laughs> Including Pokemon. Um, Pokemon. I've, been, I've been doing this for uh, the better part of 10 years. So, yeah. And then um, even when I teach, quote unquote, normal yoga classes, I mean, they always have some sort of narrative bent to them. There's some kind of story there. Yeah. Because for me, that like I need that. 
if I'm going to move my body, I need to know why I need a motivation. Mm -hmm. And for me, I much prefer the motivation of we need to carry these hobbits to Isengard. <laughs> I was just going to say Lord of the Rings. Um, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Rather than you're, you're going to get ripped for bikini season. Like that does nothing. <laughs> uh, yeah, that's a little more. Yeah, right. It's a little more abstract. I know you did a yoga class uh, a few weeks ago centering on um, Body by Starfleet, the new fitness book. Uh, I did. By Rob Pullman, yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. And I had, I had Rob on the show a few weeks ago to talk about geek fitness and, and trying to view your fitness journey through the lens of your interests. And taking that into the mental health space, I know that you're both proponents of geek therapy, which I was kind of unfamiliar with. Can you talk about the principles of geek therapy or how you apply it to therapy and treatment? Yeah, uh, I I'm going to speak to that for one second, and I will pass it off to sure. uh, to Larissa. So on our podcast, um, I Justine am the Kirk, and I I tend to Kirk out quite a bit, and then Larissa <laughs> swoops in with with all the the Spocky logic and amazing book learning. Um, so so we actually we call what we do therapeutic fan fiction. Okay, sure, uh, and. And the reason we do that is that it, we don't just work with geek clients, but we're very much proponents of adult play therapy. So like play for everyone and that um, creating these therapeutic fan fictions is something that anybody can use, not just the geek community. Obviously we're in the geek community, yeah. but it's, you know, this is applicable to anybody um, to bring the the power and love of stories that we have innately in us yeah. into our adult lives. And now Spock. Well, and I mean, you said that really beautifully, sir. You set that up really nicely. Um, I guess all I would add to that is that um, we really focus on kind of using both psychotherapy tools paired with specific fandoms and helping clients figure out how to create a bridge between the stories they love and the change that they want to see in their lives. Um, so that might look like um, if they are maybe lacking confidence at work, maybe they have a big presentation coming up rather than just trying to think about like different behaviors they could use or different breathing techniques in terms of relaxation. We're looking at, okay, what are characters that really speak to you when you think of leadership and confidence? Mm -hmm. And if like Captain Jean-Luc Picard is the first thing that comes to mind, it's like, okay, great. How could you, like, what would Jean-Luc say to you to help mm -hmm. like pump you up in preparation for this meeting? Mm. How can you channel him? Um, and so it really like, ideally helps people see that they can take the stories and the characters that they love and find, like use, use those characters to help them find their own internal power within to make the changes that they seek in their own daily lives. Mm -hmm. And is this a form of, of narrative therapy or narrative counseling? Yeah, it takes, yeah, it takes a very big, um, borrow from narrative therapy, um, <laughs> with like a sprinkle of play therapy and, um, also a dash of internal family systems therapy. Okay. Mm -hmm. Okay. Uh, and uh, anything uh, else? Anything else in this uh, therapeutic cake that we're making? <laughs> you know, I would maybe like two tablespoons of family systems, <laughs> and, and that's and then you just shake that up. It's like a shake and not stir experience. <laughs> <laughs> Delicious. 
something that I've observed just as a layperson is that to me, it seems like psychology and psychiatry for a long time was about focusing on returning somebody to you know, quote unquote normal or to the the mean in a psychological sense, being like everybody else. But with the you know acceptance of quote unquote non traditional lifestyles and LGBTQ plus people, it seems like more and more people are being encouraged to to be themselves, to be comfortable with that, while also examining how you can be better or deal with your actual problems. And I like the idea that geeks. Traditionally, one of the most disparaged groups of all time uh, can be encouraged to be themselves um, in a therapeutic sense. I mean, 20 years ago, if I told my therapist that I read comic books, the advice might have been, well, have you tried putting down the comic books, like the kids sure. stuff? Uh, but now you guys are writing essays about comic book characters for books about psychology. And now we're writing a book. Yeah. <laughs> Tell me about the book. Yeah. Um, so the book is Starship Therapize, Using Therapeutic Fan Fiction to Rewrite Your Life. And it'll be out in 2021, uh, May the 4th, if all goes well. Okay. Um, and yes, we get the irony of well. our <laughs> mostly Star Trek themed <laughs> thing coming out on Star Wars Day, but whatever. All fandoms are welcome. Uh <laughs> And, and the book is, it's a more cohesive compilation of, you know, all of our pod topics and our writings. And the, the hope is that it's, it's a nice self-help journey for, yeah. for folks to do at home. Yeah. Well, that sounds fantastic. And, and congratulations on that. Thank you. Well, thanks for joining me on the show today. A happy Memorial Day, by the way. Happy? I never know about that. Or right. just pleasant, perhaps? <laughs> Pleasant. <laughs> I solemnly Memorial extend you Day. well wishes. Yes. <laughs> uh, when you oh, that made me feel like the Elcor. <laughs> <laughs> I get that reference. Uh, when you think of space opera or science fiction TV shows, I know personally, I don't really think about somebody laying on a couch talking to a therapist, but that's apparently what Gene Roddenberry was thinking when he created the character of Deanna Troy for Star Trek The Next Generation. And Star Trek, back to the original series, had always been a show about emotion, uh, even as Spock mm -hmm. is in the corner repressing his. And it's always been a show about psychology as well. Nine times out of ten, Captain Kirk wasn't shooting the villain of the week with a phaser or drop kicking them. He was outmaneuvering them mentally and manipulating mm -hmm. them uh, psychologically. And yes, I think I would I would agree with that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I I think it's interesting that when the time started or when the time came to start a new Trek show in the eighties, uh, next gen, um, that idea like evolved into we've got a show that is almost 100 years past, you know, the original show showing 100 years of development of this utopian society. And, you know, the Federation has decided that uh, Federation starships in the 24th century, at least galaxy class ones, should have a counseling department and the counselor would even occupy the third seat of the bridge. And it's such a weird way to go from just having Kirk in the center chair and then, you know, yelling at Spock off to his right to really <laughs> with a little blue light on his eyes, uh, the viewfinder, uh, to enshrining, you know, their counselor as if not third in command, like in that third seat. Like it's a real it's a real interesting commitment to um, to addressing or at least representing mental health that you, I don't think you see in other sci fi fandoms of the time. No, I can't think of any other sci fi fandoms that. W that was attempting to really take that stand around the importance of mental health and emotional intelligence and and feelings being as important in the future as as anything else, right? As all mm -hmm. of the technological advantages. 
Yeah, I can't think of any other 80s franchises um, or even like early 90s. I mean, look at how like mental health is depicted in Terminator 2, you know, in the, in the early 90s. Like it's <laughs> it's a far cry yeah. from the sensitivity mm-hmm. we get in TNG. But retroactively, I think it seems like the perfect nuance or the perfect new area of Trek to explore, if you will. Well, right. I mean, our uh, one of our taglines for what you know, for our deal is Starship Therapies, self, the final frontier. Okay, yeah, I like right? that. Right? Yeah. Well, right? We're not just out exploring space. We're also, what's really radical, it's exploring our inner space. Inner space, yeah. Yeah, and so props to Gene Roddenberry. Yeah, for sure. For being ahead of his time. Yeah, <laughs> which is, I, I don't know what the... Uh, you know, when you look at his life, he had a really interesting life, and I'm not sure exactly why he was the guy to, number one, come up with this, you know, vision of a utopia, but then number two, go, we need mental health professionals in here. We need, like, it's like the, the complete opposite of, um, you know, like an L. Ron Hubbard, who was, like, 100% <laughs> like the opposite. But he's like, no, no, we would totally have people, you know, counselors and people to talk to in the future. That's just as important as anything else that we that we do. I do wish L. Ron Hubbard had had that idea. <laughs> Things would have gone a lot of, a lot differently for a lot of people. <laughs> <laughs> but a pod for another day. Yeah, that's a pod for it for a different day. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, emotions and people dealing with them are are all over Star Trek. And like, mm-hmm. if you look at other fandoms, you know, Luke gets over his aunt and uncle dying really quick, and Han Solo never sure. has any sleepless sleepless nights about all the crimes that he's committed and people that he's murdered. Uh, mm-hmm. And Star Trek alternately seems like the, you know, the franchise for emotional navel gazing. Um, But even saying that, like the role of a counselor, at least in the cast, mostly disappears uh, after the end of TNG. You know, it comes back briefly Mm -hmm. in DS9. Um, And I wonder why you guys think that that happens after such a a big, solid start uh, with Trek in the late 80s. The place that I usually, or I suppose like my initial thought there is that it seems like it's been hard for the writer's room, like even the TNG writer's room to know exactly what to do with counselor Troy. Mm-hmm. Like in some way she ends up becoming not quite captain Picard's consciousness, but certainly like her, the focus of her role is I think more towards counseling him and helping him like engage more directly with his emotions. Mm-hmm. And I think there are some really great examples of that being really beautifully done, but I don't think the show goes there in terms of really like plumbing the depths of what would what would she be working on with her clients, right? Who are also her shipmates and her colleagues and some of them are her friends. Which is a big no no in our current society, by the way. That's that's against our ethics codes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it would be considered a, a dual role. And Counselor Troy has so many dual roles mm-hmm. because she's the counselor. So, like, theoretically, in the 24th century, they've completely reimagined how one would do those kinds of therapeutic boundaries. So you could be someone's friend and ship's counselor and superior officer. <laughs> and what the, the alternative would be her just uh, sequestering herself in one part of the ship and like nobody really is friends with her or knows her beyond just being the, the therapist. Yeah, like that would be the way we do it 
currently. Yeah, that would, would be rough. Which would be very lonely and terrible. Yeah, yeah. Right. <laughs> right, because, I mean, there are there are such things as, like, on-site coaches for mm-hmm. big companies mm-hmm. um, and who are, you know, they're part of the team and they're also there for counseling purposes. But, like, they they don't get to just hang out. <laughs> yeah, right. And especially if you were, if you were living in all in, if you were working where you live and living where you work, that'd be really complicated. And playing mm-hmm. poker with everybody every Thursday. Right. Right. Yeah. It's... I mean, the implication is always that like Troy no- navigates it beautifully. Oh, and sure. there's certainly, yeah. I think like echoes in Picard of how she might do that. Like there's different ways that like she names and will talk to like Picard, for example, about, about like, okay, well now we're using this role that we have where I'm more your therapist and now we're switching over and we're friends. And she's very mindful and artful of, of the way that she does that. Um, but we don't get a lot of that in the original series itself. Yeah. Mm-hmm. In, in the original series, Bones was a, a counselor of sorts, but his therapeutic tools were <laughs> bourbon and gin mostly. <laughs> a counselor in the you way know, your bartender is your counselor. Well, actually, that's that's interesting because there are therapeutic modalities that would kind yes. of like gel with the mm-hmm. way that Bones was. Mm-hmm. Like, what do you think? Whitaker, Larissa? I think Whitaker, I think there's a little bit of like cognitive behavioral therapy that really focuses on like changing, changing cognitions and changing behavior to like shift out of unhealthy patterns. I think there's some of that with Bones for mm-hmm. sure. That's interesting. Yeah. It's not the therapist I would want, but <laughs> right, it yeah. could be oh. useful for someone. Right. And it, it was the therapist that they had. In the- <laughs> yeah, that's, that's, that's what they had. Uh, so, you know, Starfleet officers are, of course, military officers. So they're always preparing for or actually experiencing combat. They're also explorers. Mm-hmm. So they're always far from home and they're experiencing isolation and restraint. You know, they're cooped up in a ship and they're space travelers. So they're always running into giant green hands or having their brains exploded by uh, godlike <laughs> beings or having to talk to aliens who live in the past and the future simultaneously. Like every single crew member on the ship should be seeing a counselor every day. <laughs> yeah. I'm on a regular basis. <laughs> yeah. The kind, yeah, the kind of abysses that they stare into like every week are just, uh, yeah, that's a lot of, that's a lot of on-job stress. Hmm. I mean, when you say it like that, I feel like there's such untapped potential in terms of like depicting the role of the counselor on the on the ship. And I, I, I it makes me really hope that like they will do more of that. They haven't so far done it in like the new Star Trek Discovery um, in terms of having a counselor role. But it it's certainly like there's a lot of untapped potential there for sure. Um, Call and it. I don't, we'll help you write it. Right. No, we would <laughs> yeah, be happy right. to consult for sure. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, we'll give your uh, contact information out at the end so people can get in touch with you. <laughs> Great. Perfect. <laughs> Wonderful. <laughs> uh, just leaving the horrors of space phenomena aside for a second, um, the real life experiences of our men and women in the military uh, in our real world have to be very similar to what Starfleet officers deal with on a regular basis. There's probably that feeling of deployment you know, when you're in the field or you're in enemy yeah. territory in the real world. Um, and when you're out in space, you know, you're away from the safety of Earth or a starship um, having that low-level feeling of peril sort of always be present. Um, and they're always meeting aliens and unfamiliar cultures in Star Trek, which is something that, in a way, military servicemen deal with on a regular basis when they're on deployment, um, meeting other cultures, people they don't speak the language with. And maybe it wasn't such a factor in the original series when Kirk and company were just bringing democracy and capitalism to the spacemen. <laughs> 
But but in TNG and beyond, Starfleet is very careful to respect and not interfere in other cultures. And it yeah. has to be stressful maintaining that practice. I think a lot of Captain Picard's sort of uh, introspection is navel gazing moments are him just wondering, you know, did we do the right thing in that case? You know, we helped somebody, we didn't help somebody. How do I live with these choices that I'm making? Because I have this power over this other race that I don't really want. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, you know, I hadn't thought of it that way, but it it does sound like Picard has awareness of the power dynamics, mm-hmm. and and he doesn't want to abuse his higher systemic rank. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Which. Which maybe would indicate that they are more advanced than we are. <laughs> we have learned something in all those years. Yeah. Yeah. Instead of just like, yeah, just Kirk flying in, disrupting your entire society and like, laters, and then just taking off. And uh, we never <laughs> we never see how yes, those people I... exist now that their computer has been talked to death or whatever the situation is. It also like it adds another another valence to something that Justine and I talked about while we were sort of prepping for our conversation today in relationship to Picard and his his anxiety about being more of a like parent figure to certain of his crew members mm-hmm. and then other folks that he encounters out on his alien exploration. And I hadn't really ever thought of it in terms of like the prime directive, but I think that probably was a component of that too, of being so aware of his position and his power and his privilege and not wanting to overstep and really worrying about, am I, am I getting it wrong? That's a fascinating idea. Like tying in the idea of him initially being uncomfortable around children and being a father figure, sort of extending mm-hmm. to his uh, his his desire or his um, his behavior of just not wanting to influence other cultures and things like that. I think that's that's a fascinating and possibly um, debilitating thing for an explorer to have. Like you are literally yeah. touching everything when you go out there, and so. Th- putting this man in charge who has this desire to see and experience, but also does not, he's an archeologist you know, and he doesn't want to touch anything or ruin anything. That's, that's a f- very fine line to walk. Yeah. We're doing a lot of nodding over here. <laughs> <laughs> I can hear it. I can hear it. <laughs> we're, we're doing a lot of compassionate nodding. That's, that's what therapists do. <laughs> yeah. Um, I didn't know I was going to be talking the whole hour, but I guess it makes sense. Uh, there was uh, <laughs> Uh, then there's the space hazards, but going back to them, you know, flying at incredible velocities through the void in a ship powered essentially by a colossal bomb and not knowing if you're going to get turned into a cube by aliens or if you're going to be assimilated and have your limbs chopped off or just be good old fashioned blown up by some Romulans. There's a character in the TOS episode, The Naked Time, named uh, Termolin, and he gets the space madness and is, is, as soon as he, you know, the space madness makes like your unconscious sort of desires and anxieties come out. And his, the first thing he talks about is his obsession with the improbability of space travel. Like he's like, you know, if God had wanted us to be in space, he'd have made us breathe vacuum. You know, we shouldn't be out here, man. And I have, <laughs> yeah. I have to imagine that that is that exists in almost every Starfleet officer to some degree. You know, just like how NASA astronauts, no matter how cool mm. and steely eyed they are has to think like, I hope those seals uh, hold when we, when we get up there. <laughs> yeah. There, I mean, there would be such a, a sense of mm-hmm. uncertainty mm-hmm. and right. right. Because there, 
I mean, obviously you're taking this huge leap of faith and you trust the people that you work with. And also, yeah, this is so improbable. I have that thought when I got on an airplane, you know, when we were allowed to fly. Um, <laughs> I remember that. Where I, where I would be like, you know, I, I have full faith in the people who built this thing, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And the people who maintain it and the person who's flying it. And also, like, when I walked through that door just now, it it seemed like a real tiny door between me and 30,000 feet above the ground. <laughs> yeah. Right? <laughs> you yeah. know? Like, of course, that, that just... Even if it's not in your conscious awareness, like that is swimming around in the unconscious. This idea right. of like, what am I doing here? I don't belong here. How is this thing flying? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, and it's very much, it's like in the body too, that how disorienting it would be to be in an entirely artificial environment. I don't, I mean, it's, I think you're right. It is, it's talked about a little bit here and there in different episodes, but I got to imagine it would mess with all kinds of things like circadian rhythms. Mm-hmm vitamin D deficiency because there's no sunlight. Perhaps I'm sure they find ways to like, <laughs> yeah. sort of like they calculate for that. They bring that into consideration. Um, but it's also interesting to think about this in light of where we started because we started with the Troy Rikers and their tree bathing. Right. And I hadn't <laughs> right. really thought that like perhaps this would be an even more powerful experience for them because they'd spent so much of their lives, the two of them, living in outer space and getting used to all these different artificial environments that being back on a planet's surface surrounded by all different forms of life would have probably like meant a great deal to them and had a profound impact on their, their, like their physicality and their physical structure. Yeah. I mean, for the people who were born or lived on a planet, I'm sure there's a lot of people in the Federation and they don't make a big point of this, but that were born on a ship or were Mm -hmm. raised on a station Mm -hmm. or have never, you know, touched, touched uh, earth as it were. But I bet um, all things told, Counselor Troy hears a lot about um, claustrophobic nightmares, um, nightmares of people suffocating or or something like that, or freezing. Um, That has to have an effect. Um, But luckily, you know, Starfleet has a wealth of therapeutic tools and professionals to help with that. And because it's sci-fi, telepathy and empathy often come into play. Uh, Tell me, and be honest, would you want Counselor Troy's ability of empathy? Would that be helpful in your practice? Um, I'm going to say no. How about you, Larissa? I, I'm actually going to take it somewhere different, which is I'm going to say, like, I think that we have a little bit of that. I'm not saying that either Justine or I are, like, partial beta Zs, but, like, <laughs> you, we talk all the time that, like, you can tell when someone's having a big feeling. Mm-hmm. Sure. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I would imagine that being an empath would be just a a real heightened experience of that. Not only could you feel the big feeling as it walked into the room, but you'd have a real sense of like what that big feeling was and mm-hmm. maybe even like a, a, a vague idea of what it might connect to. Um, I don't know. I think, I think it would be helpful. It's something yeah. that I've always liked about the depiction of Troy and the way Marina Sirtis plays her is that we know that she mm-hmm. is, or we just assume that she is constantly, you know, sensing emotions from people. But even when she runs into characters like Lal or um, like Soji mm, in Picard, yeah. she knows that they are experiencing emotions because she's just that good at her job. You know, she is also right. a trained mm. mental health professional and a counselor. And so she can tell that somebody has a problem. And it, she's not just relying on her ability to, to sense mm-hmm. uh, people's feelings. I think that's really cool. Yeah, the reason the reason I say no, I don't want it. it there, there's a couple reasons behind that. First, 
Um, I think it's much more important to be compassionate than to be empathic. Hmm. Um, empathy implies that we are walking with the person through their pain, meaning we are feeling their pain as they walk through it. And it's much harder to be objective if we are also feeling like if somebody can't, comes in to talk to me and just experienced a significant trauma, it would be very hard for me to walk them through that trauma if I too am feeling the traumatic effects of that event. Hmm. Um, and so being able to have compassion for them, but hold the distance, the space between us, yeah. I'm able to have more objectivity and not absorb their feelings as much. Yeah. Um, Cause that, that'll burn you out. Maybe not betazoids. It would burn me out. <laughs> well, it's a, well, like, I mean, betazoids have to go through, and I, I'm, I apologize, I'm blanking on like which Star Trek book, but I remember there was a Star Trek book that featured Deanna, and it, and, um, I think I talked my parents into getting it for me at the supermarket. Whatever, that's not important. What's important <laughs> is that there's this section in in the book where counselor, it's like a flashback, and she remembers being a child, like a little little baby on little baby on Betazoid. Her Betazad is the planet, I think. Um, baby Betazoid. <laughs> I really want to. I really want to make that one word. I'm just gonna step back. Go that's on. fair. Puns are really your thing. Um, and part of what she learns in nursery school and is you one of the first things you learn is how to create a um, like mental block. Mm -hmm. So how to create a separation between you and the other person mm -hmm. so that you are not just overwhelmed by everybody's feelings all the time. Mm -hmm. um, and so I would imagine that like Troy has had to do she's done a lot of that work. And that's part of it. Like, that was like part of her childhood was learning how to create some of that separation so she can have that objectivity and isn't, as you're saying, Justine, um, like burnt out. Yeah. Mm -hmm. It's interesting because in her earliest depiction, you know, in, uh, in Farpoint, she is really feeling those feelings that mm -hmm. she feels from other people. You know, when she says that she's yeah. feeling fear, we see her uh, take that on, which is fun as an mm -hmm. actress, but yeah, it would be exhausting as an actual counselor. So that's cool to think that she is feeling these things, but uh, like Larissa said, she's developing this control and it really falls into line with the idea that they had originally envisioned her as a Spock-like character, you know, a character who would be sort of controlling feelings as mm -hmm. well. So that's a good, mm -hmm. that's a good payoff. Um, yeah. But it gets her in trouble as much as it helps though, because somebody's always hijacking it to torture her with music box tunes or something like that. <laughs> and the, <laughs> and the mind, the mind melds another technique that in theory could be very beneficial in treatment and we see Tuvok use it to treat Lon Suter on Voyager. Of course, that doesn't go well because Suter's tendencies bleed back into Tuvok, and he's not exactly ready for that. Yeah, I have to. I have to admit that I don't. I don't recall this particular episode very well because I haven't rewatched Voyager the way I've rewatched all the others. Mm -hmm. um, so I can affirm that, like, yes, I do remember that being the case, and I can't <laughs> add much more to that. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> and Tuvok, for as smart he as he is, is not you know a trained counselor. He's not a mental health professional. But his first response to any time we've got a catatonic person or somebody experiencing emotions is, "I will do a mind meld." It's like, is that a good idea, buddy? Do we want to do that? It's true that that is his default. Like Tuvok is always that is the tool he reaches for immediately. Yeah. Mind melt. <laughs> Toaster's yeah, not working. Mind melt. Continuing Ed, he needs to learn some other tools. Yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. he oh, just he falls does. back on this one tool. Yeah. Yeah. The the mm -hmm. thing that I love about the possibility of mind melding is I think it would be amazing for um, couple or family therapy hmm. because mm -hmm. we would be able to, as clinicians, guide the family through mind melding with each other so that they can see 
for, I know Larissa's having this big reaction, but <laughs> like we're, we're observing it, right? We're, Here we are. You know, um, <laughs> the idea being that they're able to share their perspective of what happened, mm-hmm. right? Because they would show how there was an argument. Oh, here's see. how I saw that argument. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And here's how I saw that argument. And then you could really see it through each other's eyes. You would need a very skilled Vulcan clinician to do what you're describing. <laughs> and yes, I'm with you. I think that like now that you've put it in those terms, it would be very helpful. I think maybe most helpful for couples, just because families, depending on ages of children and things, it could get unwieldy sure. real quickly. But mm-hmm. for sure with couples, I'm with you that I think that would be a, a, a wonderful tool. Because p- couples come in all the time and they're like, I just don't know how he or she or they could think that. What I just don't understand. I would never it. feel that way in that huh. situation. <laughs> and in my own mind, I'm always like, well, yeah, that's because this is a different human sitting across from you. Yeah. And a mind weld would make that point so beautifully. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, you could also do something similar with the holodeck the way that they mm. did so just made us so mad in that app with Riker. What was that called? Oh yeah. The app where that we talked about that on our own podcast. Yeah. The Me Too uh, one. Yeah. The, um, the Me Too episode. The, uh, when they were trying. Yeah. What was the What, what happened in the episode? So, uh, Riker may or may not have, um, assaulted a woman oh, a matter of perspective a matter perspective. of perspective right yeah third season yeah i mean that well that episode brings up a lot of feelings for me that's another way you can use that technology right they took everybody's perspective and then created hollows of it so right. that you could see it yep that's way better than getting into my parents head i think like, like you said <laughs> you need a real skilled a uh, Vulcan therapist, you know, just to show me like their perspective on the argument and not like what was on Blue Bloods last night. Like, I don't care about that. I just want to <laughs> get their perspective. You know, the holodeck, I, I think it's a disappointment that we don't see it used more as a therapeutic tool. I think it would be an amazing therapeutic tool. And sure, you can abuse it like Barkley initially does, but it would be, I think, an extremely effective way to help people with all kinds of complaints. Yeah, I was I was thinking about this the other day, actually, because one of one of the struggles with like group therapy, which is like you bring a bunch of people together and have a couple therapists facilitating. And the idea is to help teach um, emotion regulation, and social skills in real time. Mm. One of the struggles with that is that oftentimes folks who could benefit the most from group therapy, it's very hard to find a group that they would themselves fit into. Mm. And so on the holodeck, you could just design a perfect group therapy situation for just one individual Mm -hmm. and send them in and then they could work on so much and there wouldn't be, I mean, it would, you would be putting like the other group members at little to no risk because they're not human beings. Right. They're holograms, which now feels like I'm taking a political stance and I don't feel. (laughs) Okay. You know, how she feels. Okay. I agree that I think the the holodeck has a lot of potential to be like the self-help a deck. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) And it's interesting. I think everybody in that time in the 24th century has some kind of cutout switch in their brain or just some acceptance of the fact that, you know, these things aren't real, but they can still serve a purpose like that. Or you can still get, it's like the way that people today, you know, get really invested in their, their TV shows or their animes or whatever. And they feel close to those characters 
I would think that like it'd be an obstacle to, for instance, as Larissa said, go into a room full of fake people and talk to them. But I, I think people in the 24th century would have that sort of, yeah, I can just kind of compartmentalize that and, you know, express myself and feel open here. Slash, I suppose, I hope that they would have maybe collectively a more nuanced understanding of what you're giving voice to, which is parasocial relationships. So that one way relationship mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm. that we have with fandom characters, fandom attachment is it's the term that Justine and I use just because it feels more friendly. Sure. Um, mm -hmm. And, and yeah, like that's why the holodeck works. It's the fandom attachment piece. It works because we do connect to characters, even if they're not, I don't know, IRL. Um, mm -hmm. And that that connection could really be used for fabulous therapeutic gain. Counselors in the 24th century should have a minor in holodeck programming for that purpose, I think. Uh, it's like when Tom programs Fairhaven for everybody on Voyager, and they got a place that they can, like, cheers, that they can just go chill yeah. out and not be Starfleet <laughs> officers for a while. Mm -hmm. You know, I know that it's just a TV show. I don't expect the writers to know a lot about psychology, but how do you think the franchise does generally in depicting mental health issue issues and their treatment? There's room for improvement. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, for its time, when I think about and go back and remind myself that Next Generation got started in like the late 80s mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm. and continued through like the early to mid 90s, it, it helps me kind of like take take myself back and say, OK, like really for the time they were doing some really innovative and new things. Yeah. Um, could they have done more with Troy? Yes, especially in terms of spending more time like looking at her sessions and giving her more to do from a therapeutic standpoint. Mm. Um, she could have been the beginning of more, and I hope I hope they go back to that. Mm. Places where they tend to struggle, I think, quite a bit, and this is not unique to Star Trek. This, I feel, is just it, – it is what often happens when media goes in to try to talk about what it is to be a therapist and to pick things clinically is it, it tends to – fall into all kinds of sort of like sleeping with the therapist pitfalls. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah. There's a couple of mental health tropes that we're real tired of as therapists. And those tropes are either the, the therapist is using the client in some way for their own gain mm -hmm. or that things get sexy. <laughs> okay. And okay. that's, that's real unethical. Yeah. Yeah. And confusing for people in the real world. Yeah. <laughs> well, especially, <laughs> especially mental yeah. health professionals who are watching the show like, what, 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 what is this? This is not professional. Mm. Yeah. And like, as Dax, like, that's tough, right? Like, it's tough to follow a character like Jadzia Dax because she was so beloved by so many, myself in included. So yeah. it's very, it was very hard what they were trying to do with Esri Dax. And yet, in many ways she makes all kinds of mistakes as a counselor, right? Like she's so, the character herself is so self-conscious yep. and it bleeds into her work. Um, and you don't really ever see her, at least not to my memory, like write her boat, so to speak, from a professional perspective. Hmm. She's kind of constantly needing help and reassurance from others. So really speaking to what Justine is saying, that like it's a depiction of the therapist using their their sessions and their clients to get their own needs met, whether they're conscious of it or not. And I think Esri's, this, I think this pretty much sits in her blind spot. Um, but Counselor Troy, like there are some great examples of her, I think doing a good job as a clinician, like the family therapy that she does with Worf and his son, Alexander. Yeah. Beautiful stuff. Yeah. Mm -hmm. 
I think Esri, I, I think you're right about Esri for the most part. I think that she gets a little better as the series and the season comes to a close. And I did like in how um, when Nog was dealing with um, PTSD mm-hmm. and um, an injury, um, she let she let him sort of manage his own care. Like he decided, I'm just going to stay mm-hmm. in the holodeck. And having that tool in this future that they have, I think she was like, okay, that's that's fine. Let's just see how this kind of plays out. Um, but yeah, I think for the most part, if we'd only had like a couple more seasons with her, I think she really could have turned into something really cool. I agree. Trying to fit all that in one season for her, yeah, that was, yeah. I think that was, ask, I'm with you. That was asking too much of everybody. Yeah. Um, well, the Federation is a pretty enlightened society. Everybody seems fairly well adjusted emotionally for the most part. And presumably they're cool about a lot of lifestyles, uh, perhaps even substances. We don't really go into that on TV because it's a primetime show. Um, right. But people can handle their synthahaller or whatever. And we don't really <laughs> we don't really see any kind of self-medication until recently on Picard, where Rafi enjoys mm-hmm. snake juice yeah. or a glass of wine or five every now and again. But it must be happening off screen um, on all the shows. Yeah, I, I yeah. feel confident that it is. I mean, I read something recently about the issues of the depiction of mental health on Star Trek. Mm-hmm. And uh, what ma- what made me think of that? I'm I'm just gonna go ahead and start over. And okay. you, can, you can clip that because I don't I don't remember where I was going. Where was well, I going, I, I Larissa? I'm gonna I'm gonna put something out there because I remember you telling me about this before we jumped on. So hopefully this is where you intended to go. Mm-hmm. Um, that you thought it was really important to make a distinction between mental health and mental illness God, and thank you. the article yes. that you had sent me was really <laughs> focusing on why haven't they gotten rid of mental illness in the 24th century like they got rid of all the other ones like pneumonia and COVID-19 Blindness. um yeah. and your point at least to me was that mm-hmm. well but that's because mental health is different you can't you can't eradicate anxiety mm-hmm. or depression because it's part of what it means to kind of be alive and to have feelings and to go through really challenging stuff. So you're not going to get rid of some of those negative byproducts like PTSD, but it was very believable in the 21st century that have they would have all kinds of new ways to treat and to address those issues. Mm-hmm. Hmm. Yes. Oh, thank you for knowing what was in my mind, Larissa. <laughs> you guys are um, good teams. I'm your Vulcan companion. This oh, is what yeah, I right. do. <laughs> yeah, get, get you a Spock. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. And, and the other thing that was coming to my mind is, yes, we're, we're not going to get rid of human f- foibles, sure. for lack of a better word. Yeah. Like that, that is what it means to be human. And part of what we do as humans is we look for ways to cope. We look for coping skills. Mm-hmm. And presumably they talk about some coping skills at Starfleet Academy because, you know, it's like, so you're going into space. Now yeah, what? Right. Um, <laughs> but also, like, people are going to do all those coping skills and notice they aren't working. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. They're gonna they're gonna do aerobics with Dr. Crusher and Deanna Troy and be like, I don't feel better. And then <laughs> they're you know, mm-hmm. and, and, and you know, go there. to the gym with Kirk and take their shirt off and be like, do you look great, and... but I still feel sad. Yeah, right, right, yeah. <laughs> right. And then they're gonna try other things. They'll be like, but you know what does feel better? Smoking this vaguely poppy like <laughs> sure. plant. 
Sure. Then I feel better. Yeah. Right. Then yeah. I also feel shame and weird, but I feel better for a little while. And so if I think it's a really logical assumption that there are people using, to borrow a very therapy phrase, maladaptive coping skills mm -hmm. to continue to move through their day. Yeah. And in that, they do a good job using the holodeck to to show that. And as with all like maladaptive coping tools, it's not the tool that's the, at fault, right? Like, it's not a moral issue with the tool. Tools are neutral. It's a question of how are you using it and in what context and how frequently, right? So, like, Barkley is one of the first folks that comes to mind when we think of someone who uses the holodeck in a way that does not really seem to serve him medium or long term he's doing the best he can and it's causing him <clears throat> a world of trouble but other characters struggle with the use of the holodeck too like there's that great episode with Jordy LaForge where he creates oh, the hollow version of yeah. Dr. Leah Brahms and mm. sort and like crosses some boundaries and sort of falls in love with her and then the real Dr. Leah Brahms comes and is like why are you acting like we have this flirty banter when we don't right. um and again part of Jordy's struggle is like he he struggles with romantic interpersonal relationship and connection. Mm -hmm. And so he's trying to get that need met and he's trying to figure out how to cope with that. And he uses the holodeck to try and help him, but without a therapist on site, wouldn't have been great if counselor Troy had been there and that had been part of their work together. <laughs> yeah. Right. <laughs> <laughs> um, I don't know if it's like Canon. I mean, we only know what we know about the show from what we see on screen, but I wonder if there's any kind of, a pharmacotherapy in the mm -hmm. Star Trek franchise because I've never seen Deanna write a script for anything. And I wonder right. if, uh, you know, they could start Barkley out on some Paxil or something and see how he does. Um, <laughs> but I wonder, Paxil. I wonder if that's a choice, you know, like if, if in their future they have rejected psychiatric, excuse me, psychiatric meds for other alternative mm -hmm. therapies, um, you know, like you mentioned yoga or like Klingon Makbara mm -hmm. or whatever, or, you know, if it's just something that we, we're not seeing. Yeah. It makes me wonder, like, what ideas they had that were probably ultimately vetoed by the network because it was a network show. Hmm. Like, I do wonder, like, what were brainstorming sessions in the writing room like and what were things that maybe they wanted to do that the network was like, no, we can't do that on TV right now. It's <laughs> yeah. 1990. Yeah, it's, yeah, right. It's it's the 80s. Uh, let's leave the drugs out for just, just for now. Yeah. yeah. Um, well, we're talking about relationships, you know, relationships exist in Star Trek, um, primarily because it's a drama series, but also humans are going to get it on and sure they're going to get it on with aliens as well. And one mm -hmm. of the biggest obstacles I can see towards maintaining a relationship when you're in Starfleet is the distance You know, our real world, sure. uh, our real world, real world servicemen and women go through this. Um, but in Starfleet, you know, you've got amazing technology, you, but you're weeks, months, years away from home. And even communications and transmissions um, take time to reach their recipients. So even though it's the future, you get this almost like Pony Express pre-industrial way of keeping in touch. You're basically writing letters and keeping, you know, a correspondence, you know, with your paramour. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Which seems like a well, huge... I love the word paramour. <laughs> <laughs> it's like a huge step backwards socially, you know, even though they're in space. Now we have to rely on this almost frontiersman way of maintaining relationships with people. And I think they, they explore that. I don't know so much in, in TNG because if memory serves, Miles and Keiko are pretty much regularly together on the Enterprise. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But in on DS9, like 
Keiko leaves and does all kinds of things yeah. in part because the actress herself didn't want to be a series regular, but then they were able to then use, like use that problem that they had in terms of like the actress's availability to have that kind of dialogue between Miles and Keiko and show the ways that their relationship struggles when Keiko, for example, wants to be gone for months and months on a, like a botany expedition on Bajor yeah. and Miles is like, please come home. Yeah. Right. <laughs> <laughs> You think it could be hard to have relationships with somebody from a different country or tradition, um, but then you can try dating somebody from another planet, I guess. Um, I guess screw men are from Mars, women are from Venus. Um, there, there's got to be a million different ways in which multi-species couples have to make allowances for their partners. And I'm reminded of the episode of TNG where Troy tells us that when she was dating Riker, she had to tell him about the phase where a Betazoid woman's uh, sex drive increases, you know, um, exponentially over time or whatever it is. Or even something oh. like the Ponfar, like you start dating mm -hmm. like a nice Vulcan and it's like, <laughs> when do we get to have sex? Wait, what? Like how many years? <laughs> Yeah, that, that must be an interesting message to deliver. Mm -hmm. Right, yeah. yeah. Right, like I'd rather not imagine what that was like between like Amanda Grayson and uh, Sarek, but that, yeah, that seems like that'd be hard. It really, <laughs> I, these are important conversations. Yeah, that, you have to have them. That yeah. all couples really need to have mm. as they start to get serious is um, there's – there's this saying in family therapy that I'm going to butcher, so I'm just going to paraphrase it, which is every couple is just two families trying to recreate themselves. Ah. And so you want to know what kind of structure your partner is trying to recreate. Yeah. yeah. And in this case, it's not just their family, but also their their system, their society. So like, hey, mm -hmm. what did it look like for you growing up? Like, what was that like? These would be... I, I would love to offer interspecies couples some some talking points huh. for both early in their relationship and as things get more serious, mm -hmm. you know, sure. like, so you're about to get physical with an alien. Like, sure. Morph and Dax seemed like they could have used some of that. Like, because it, yeah. it's, yeah, like, early on in there, and, and it seems like this is working for Dax, and I'm sort of, part of me is a little surprised it made it on network TV, but, you know, when it turned, when it comes to, like, heterosexual depictions of sexuality it seemed like there was a little bit more leeway there um but there's definitely like a bdsm component that's hinted at between morph and dax in part because klingons like it rough <laughs> yeah well yeah and also just like when they decide to get married of course it's sort of an analog for he's very orthodox and she's yeah. just you know nothing like so she has to go through all these trials literal trials you know with his family in order to satisfy them and has to make a choice about whether she wants to continue that or not i, I dax is a great example of i think a healthy uh a person with a healthy view on relationships you know she kind of came to that the long way because she's hundreds of years old and, and is always switching bodies right. and stuff like that. But yeah, just like being open to dating, you know, being with somebody, you know, later when she's Esri, she sort of tries it on again with Worf and is like, I don't think this is going to be a thing. And then they just, you yeah. know, remain good friends. Oh. And um, I think the fluidity of that is is not something that you see very often um, in sci-fi shows. And I think that that's really cool. Yeah, I agree. I think they did really, I think in lots of ways they tried to be thoughtful about like Dax and how she showed up. And it's definitely because I'm, I'm actually rewatching DS9 right now. And one of the things I've been thinking about is that especially today, how 
I feel like if, if, if DS9 was a show like right now, currently 2020, well, it would be on hiatus. But if it had been a show <laughs> 2018, <laughs> I think that there would have been so much opportunity to take Dax in all kinds of different directions mm-hmm. in relationship to her sex and sexuality, gender non-binary pieces. Like there's so much you can do with that character. And I think they do a great job with what's allowed to them in the 1990s. Yeah. And also... It, it would have been amazing to see how, what they would have gone with her character. Cause, cause they do with what they've got. They try to really talk about all the different fluidity and how, and, and the actress I think does a really good job of trying to embody that, like the ways that she is, she's both genders, right? Because she's lived in all these different time periods and these different bodies yeah. for hundreds of years. She's like a doctor who that actually gets it on. Mm. Yeah, that's, that's, that's a much more succinct version of what I was trying to say. Not that the, <laughs> not that the doctor has to get it on, but I'm just, yeah, I'm just saying. No, but, but you know, Dex is very pro-sex. Yeah, for sure. Um, well, sex, love, and relationships often lead to children, which is great. But, uh, you know, in, in the Star Trek universe, that can be even more complicated. Um, you can have, you know, bi- in real life, biracial children... Uh, run into a lot of obstacles. And in Trek, you're getting biracial children, bicultural children, by species children. Um, Spock would be a great example of all of those put together. Um, and that's a struggle. And it also occurs to me that, except for a few shining examples, I don't think we see a lot of great parents in Trek. Um, maybe it's just an easy TV writing hook. You know, everybody's parents are, they're fighting with them or they're dead or, or something like that. Um, but I wonder why we don't, because... It's almost comical uh, on TNG. Any episode that features a child will almost invariably will cut to them and they'll just be sitting by themselves in a darkened room somewhere <laughs> after, you know, their parents have died in a, in a starship crash or, or something like sure. that. And you wonder, like, who, emo. who's looking after these kids? Like, is there a, a level of child responsibility that they're comfortable with in the 24th century that is unfamiliar to us now? I mean, I guess they can feed themselves. Replicators take care of that. Sure. No, it's an interesting point. And I have to say one that I didn't necessarily consider, but the only, I mean, one of the few examples of solid parenting, I think is between uh, Benjamin Sisko and his son, Jake. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, Benjamin Sisko is a great dad, like five-star dad. And I like, this was not a component of the show that stood out to me when I was young, first watching it. But now as an adult, I'm like, wow, look at you showing up for your son, having difficult conversations with him, but with compassion, no one else is doing that. Yeah. (laughs) Like the O'Briens have this thing where like they talk between their children when they're upset. So like they make that they make Molly, their daughter, be like a messenger when they're irritated. <laughs> yeah. And it just and poor little Molly's face is so confused. Right. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's not great. It's not great. <laughs> yeah. And then you have Wesley who just wants yeah. Picard to be his dad. Like he just wants Picard to like sit him down and be like, son, I know I'm not your bio dad, but in every way that matters, I choose you. Right. And, and, he, and he doesn't do that for Wesley. And I think it does have like long for long term. I think it does some damage to Wesley. Yeah. Well, he's, I mean, yeah. he finds a father figure in a three-fingered guy who takes him off into the cosmos. So he runs right. off with the Traveler. He does. Oh, see? that, And that's because of early attachment concerns. That's what happened for Wesley Crusher. There you go. <laughs> he had anxious attachment. Yeah. And he found himself a strange older man to attach to. 
it has mm. to be hard and perhaps even irresponsible to raise your child aboard a starship in a military. But I think it is interesting that when we do see that, you you get the idea that they are kind of being parented by um, a crew that is a family, you know, or by multiple people. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I know that uh, like Wesley can go to Troy for any problems he has, even though his mother is there and is a good mother. And Naomi Wildman, she's getting all over the ship, but she's kind of being raised by everybody in a way, especially by Seven of Nine or the Borg kids that Seven of Nine kind of takes under sure. her wing and adopts. Yeah. So there's there's sort of extended family that I imagine must exist in some environments uh, in the real world. Um, I'm not sure where exactly. Yeah, I think in this sort of situation, which like, yes, I know that we don't have spaceships, but, you know, we were talking earlier about how this is very Mm Frontiers-like. And, you know, in many ways it is quite Frontier-like because we here we are the small colony of people. All we have is each other. There's no, like... There's no nearby other humans, so we're we're kind of all we've got. Yeah, mm-hmm. and and we can infer that the crew of of the Starship Enterprise make meaning through this community. Mm-hmm. So not just through the work that they do, but through the life that they lead, which makes it worthwhile to them to be gone for so long and put up with things like however long it takes to send a message back home because, you know, p- people will basically put up with any how for a why, hmm. which is a bastardization of a Nietzsche quote. <laughs> <laughs> well, and kind of going along with that, I think Star Trek does a really nice job of, um, giving voice to family of choice. So this mm. idea that it's not just the family that raised you, it's also the family that as an adult, you go out and you choose and you form these really beautiful, wonderful bonds. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I mean, and like, and so when, when I, when I say that, and when I even talk about family of choice, frankly, like in a clinical context, what always comes up for me or almost always comes up for me is the, the poker scene that they regularly like reference in the show and depict between Riker, Troy, Data, Crusher, Geordi, Worf, and then finally, in the final season, the captain joins. Right, right. Which, in some ways, is a really, like, it's a beautiful arc for Jean-Luc, because it's very much him kind of, it seems like making peace with this idea that, like, he can be a parental figure, and he can be a part of a family. He had such anxiety about how to do that. Um, And it does feel like part of his hero's journey in the arc of the show is learning how to connect and how to have that feel like a safe experience. Which is a lesson we all can learn. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. Well, Justine and Larissa, we could just go on and on and on, but we'll probably bring it to a close <laughs> here. Uh, thanks so much for talking with me today. Uh, where can people find you and Starship Therapies online? Uh, people can find me, Justine, um, at my website, blueboxcounseling.com. Or um, on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at Mind Body Fandom because I take a holistic approach to healing mind, body, and fandom. And then our podcast, Starship Therapies with an S, just like the Enterprise, is available on Apple Podcasts. Um, and you can find me on Twitter at Spock's All Ears. That's that's all I've got for now. You can find me there. Great. <laughs> and and uh, Starship Therapies is also um, on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter 
Oh yes. So feel feel free to engage with us. We we like talking. <laughs> engage nice. as you have as you have currently discovered. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, remind us one more time uh, when your book is coming out. Uh, May the fourth be with you. May the fourth, twenty twenty one. Okay. Yep. <laughs> We're working on edits as we speak. Nice. Well, thanks again for talking with me. Thanks, thanks so much for having us. Yeah, this has been great. Hey, Trekkies, I'm Caliban. And I'm Gooey Fame. And we're the hosts of the new podcast, Backtrekking. I thought that we were going to say it together. Oh, Backtrekking. <laughs> do you want to do it again? Just just don't worry about it. Every week, we look at the real-life inspirations behind classic Star Trek episodes. The original series, Next Gen, DS9, Voyager, and more. And we're examining the actual events, stories, and concepts that they're based on. Join us as we go trekking through sci-fi history. You know, we have a time machine. Let's go back and do the intro again. Hey, Trekkies, I'm Caliban. Backtracking. God damn it. <laughs>